Well, we are in a series called Grounded in our ninth week, and we're working through our statement of faith. Um, but before we get into it, I wonder, have you ever heard the phrase, hold down the fort? You ever used that phrase? You know, you take off and you're like, hey, can you just hold down the fort here while I go for a little bit? I bet you, you probably have, um, but do you know where it comes from? Do you ever wonder, why do we say that? It's kind of a strange saying. Well, it originated in the Civil War. Uh, the year was 1864. The United States was in the throes of the Civil War. And in July of that year, Union forces, under the command of General William Tecumseh Sherman, fought to seize the important rail and supply hub of Atlanta. And uh, they were making their way south and eventually over to the sea. And his forces for the Union Army far outnumbered the Confederates as they came upon Atlanta. So they, they quickly overwhelmed them and, uh, and captured the city of Atlanta. Uh, the battle began in July, but it took until September before the city actually fell to the Northern forces. And when they got there, they were facing a general from the south uh, named John Bell Hood. And Hood, when he recognized that uh, they weren't gonna win this battle, he kind of uh, flanked Sherman's troops and, and went up uh, to the north towards Alatoona Pass. And his goal as he went to Alatoona Pass, here's a picture actually from that era of it, was to cut off the railroad coming from the north and thus cut off the supplies of the Union forces. In fact, there was a, a bridge over the river there that he intended to burn down. And that was his mission. So as he moved north in Alatoona, there was a, a station there and an outpost of, of Union troops. And at that post were stored about 1.5 million rations for the Northern Army. So it was really important that they held the fort there. And so uh, what happened is at that fort, uh, General uh, John, or Murray, John Murray Corse, excuse me, he was a politician turned soldier from Iowa. He commanded troops from uh, uh, regiments from a combination of Illinois and Wisconsin and Minnesota at this place. And there were about 1,500 of them holed up guarding these rations. Well, Hood uh, sent one of his own generals up to attack the fort as they worked their way north along the railroad. Uh, this guy, Samuel French, and he told him to go take the fort at Alatoona. Well, this time, the Confederates had the advantage. French had about 6,000 to 7,000 troops in, in his regiment that he was leading uh, against the 1,500, of course, and after surrounding them in their fort, the following correspondence took place. French sent this letter and he said, I have placed the forces under my command in such positions that you are surrounded and to avoid a needless effusion of blood. I call on you to surrender your forces at once and unconditionally, five minutes will be allowed for you to decide. Should you accede to this, you will be treated in the most honorable manner as prisoners of war. Five minutes, it's not very long. Well, Course receives this correspondence and then he very quickly responds with his own and here's what he said. He said, your communication demanding my, my uh, surrender of my command, I acknowledge receipt of 
and respectfully reply that we are prepared for the needless effusion of blood whenever it's agreeable to you. (laughs) See, it sounds like kind of a smart aleck a little bit there, doesn't he? But he was ready, he was prepared, and well, that's what he got. The next morning at 7 a.m., the Confederate soldiers began firing at Alatuna. And what commenced was a smaller, but maybe one of the bloodiest battles of the Civil War. And as the battle raged, uh, Corse lost over half of his 1,500 troops, close to 900. Even he himself took shots. And he recounted uh, in, in a note to Sherman, who was a ways away, that he lost, lost a cheekbone, half his men, and an ear. But he was ready to keep going. It only seemed a matter of time, though, until they would fall. But then, across the valley, uh, from the top of Mount Kennesaw, one of the men at Alatuna noticed there was a flag signal being waved, and there were men uh, across the hill, and this, this picture actually is believed to be of the actual flag that was used. And they waved a signal to those at Alatuna, and here's what the signal said. Hold the fort, I'm coming, W.T. Sherman. Well, you can imagine, they went from despair to just renewed energy to fight and defend the fort. And they did so for the next three hours or so until Sherman's troops came and uh, caused all of the Confederates to retreat. And that's how we came with the phrase, hold the fort. It took root in America and Britain. And shortly after this happened, it it was so inspirational a story that it inspired uh, one guy to write a hymn about it because it reminded him of Jesus' second coming and Jesus' words to to wait for him and to be ready that he was coming again. Here's the hymn, it went like this. It was called Hold the Fort. Oh, my comrades, see the signal waving in the sky. Reinforcements now appearing, victory is nigh. Hold the fort, for I am coming. Jesus signals still. Wave the answer back to heaven. By thy grace, we will. Pretty powerful, isn't it? Well, today we're talking about that, that that Jesus is coming, that he will return. And uh, before we do that, though, I'm gonna pray, and uh, then we're gonna continue as we teach through our statement of faith in this series, and today specifically talking about Christ's return. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. And Jesus, thank you that you're coming that uh, you, one, you haven't left us here alone, you've sent your spirit, but also uh, you're coming again to finish what you began, to to rescue your people, to usher in uh, what you originally intended with all of creation, for your rule and your reign and peace and goodness to the full. So Holy Spirit, would you uh, teach us and and teach me and through me as uh, we look at your word and your truth and encourage us with it? that we would live lives honoring to you. That uh, to borrow the phrase, we'd, we'd hold the fort knowing that you're coming. Thanks, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, we're part of the Evangelical Free Church of America. 
the EFCA, uh, Roberto and Robin also serve as part of the EFCA, part of our family. And we're united around a common statement of faith. And so in this series, we've just been working through each of those uh, 10 points in our statement of faith and teaching through them. And today we're on number nine of 10, uh, specifically dealing with Christ's return. So just like we have each week, would you join me? Let's just read this together. We believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy and as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. Well, you know, uh, we say in here that the coming of Christ is our, our blessed hope. That's a phrase borrowed uh, from Titus chapter two, where Paul writes this to a young pastor, Titus. He says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Speaking of Jesus' first coming, he has appeared. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So it influences and informs the way we live our life. We talked about that last Sunday. And while all the time we wait for the blessed hope. Well, what's that? He says, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or some translations will say, the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, what I want you to see here this morning is that our hope, our constant hope, is that Jesus will return. He will return. Uh, That's our glorious hope. And we believe that he'll return personally, bodily, gloriously. Let's kind of unpack that a little bit. Uh, We stated that a little bit ago in our statement of faith. First off, personally, Jesus himself will return. You know, there's there's some churches over time, it's it's been a little while since Jesus said, I'm coming again, hasn't it? About 2,000 years. And so they're like, okay, well, maybe he's not really coming. Maybe it's like, he meant like spiritually he's coming. And so this, this whole movement developed thinking that, that he wasn't maybe really coming back. But the way the, the Bible teaches it and informs us is that no, he is coming. He's coming personally. Uh, in First Thessalonians we read, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. He'll descend from heaven personally, he will. And not only this, but he'll come bodily. You know, in, in Acts chapter one, uh, just before Jesus' ascension, he's, he's hanging out with the disciples and he's telling them about uh, what they should do and they should wait for the spirit and then they're gonna be his witnesses and kind of gives them some final instructions, right? And then we read in verse nine, uh, what happened after this, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I just, I kind of want to see like the, the video of this on Netflix in heaven, right? Like, like well, they're just standing there staring and all of a sudden somebody comes, what are you looking at? Why, why are you still staring up at the sky? This Jesus whom you saw ascend, he's going to come again. How? In the same way you saw him go. How did they see him go? They saw him go physically, bodily, 
ascending and he's going to come in the same way again in bodily form. It'll be a physical return the same way we saw him go and it'll be visible. There'll be no mistaking his return. Everyone will see it. Even those who don't believe in him will see it. The the idea that it would be just a spiritual kind of fly-by-night secret return um, just has no basis in scripture. Listen here from, as I read from Matthew chapter 24, the disciples asked Jesus, they said, tell us a little bit about your coming again. What's it gonna be like? And they had left the temple and they're on the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to him, well, if anybody says to you, look, here's the Christ or hey, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and they'll perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, even if possible, the elect. He goes, see, I've told you now beforehand. He's kind of saying, if, if somebody says, I think, I think he's come back. I think this guy with this website, I think that might be Jesus. Jesus is like, no, it's, it's not. It's not. If people tell you, go look here, look there. It's not me. So if they say, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. And then he says this, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the son of man. Ever been outside in a lightning storm? Did anybody ever have to tell you there was a big flash and crack you know, thunder and lightning? You saw it, didn't you? Even if your eyes were closed, <laughs> you saw the sky flash. There will be no mistaking his return. Everyone will see it. In fact, in Acts, we read that he will return just like we saw him go, like they'd seen him go. Behold, we read in Revelation, He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, meaning uh, those who don't know him. Even so, amen. And so friends, he'll come physically, bodily, visibly, and gloriously as as our blessed hope. We read in in Matthew 25, when the son of man comes, Jesus says in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. It it just echoes exactly what Paul said to Titus uh, that we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ. So friends, Jesus will return. But you might be like, dude, it's been a minute, 2,000 years? Like when's, when's he coming? Here's when, it's, here's when he's coming, at a time we don't know. They're like, oh, thanks, that's really helpful. I know, but that's, that's exactly what Jesus says. He's going to come at a time that we do not know. Here, look, here, here's what Jesus says. Remember I told you the disciples had grabbed him and they they asked him uh, one day, hey, tell us about your coming again. Tell us when these things will happen, how it's gonna happen. Give us all the details. And here was Jesus' response. Con- concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. So do you know when the Bible says and when Jesus says here, that nobody knows when he's going to return. Do you know what that means? 
it actually means nobody knows. So like when you hear somebody say, uh, well, I think he's coming next week. You can probably rule next week out. Like I think nobody knows. You know, there was a guy in, uh, 19, in the 1980s, he, he wrote a book, 88 Reasons the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. A bunch of people bought this book. Some of you might even remember it. Uh, a lot of people bought it and, and they, they literally, they changed their lives around the fact that they thought Jesus was returning. Like they pulled their kids out of school and they sat as a family and they were waiting and excited. He gave an exact date, I think in September. And then clearly it didn't happen. So he wrote a new book. He said, oh, my, my, uh, my calculations were off. It's 1989. And he wrote a new one for 1989. That one didn't sell quite as well as the one for 1988. And then he made one for 1993 and 1994. No one knows. No one knows. And this sort of thing, you can trace history. This has been happening for hundreds of years. People have had uh, uh, these predictions. But generally, if somebody predicts that, uh, They're guessing, they don't know. Jesus said he didn't know. How would they know? One thing I can tell you though, is that we do live in the last days. We do. And the reason I can tell you that with certainty is because in uh, the early church, 2000 years ago, Peter, when he preached, said we were in the last days. Paul, when he wrote, said these are the last days. James, Jesus' little brother, talks about it being the last days, meaning the days after Jesus' first coming leading up to his second. Now, I don't know exactly when the end times of those last days are gonna take place, but I'll make a case for you a little later that when those things happen, we'll know. We won't have to guess. We won't have to speculate. It'll be clear. And so in the meantime, we can just live with hope that Jesus will return. And when we say hope, we're not talking like, I hope, I hope, man, I really hope, I wish, you know what I mean? Like wishful thinking, but hope like confidence. When the Bible speaks of hope, that's what it means, a confident assurance that he'll do what he said he'll do, that he will return. And so Jesus goes on with with details. He says, for as as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of, of the son of man. You know, in in Revelation 2, we read, uh, uh, Revelation also, I mean, it's actually in Revelation 1, we read that that Jesus is coming soon. These things must soon take place. Well, God's timetable isn't quite like ours. Soon there can also mean uh, just that when they start to unfold, they'll happen quickly and soon. It doesn't necessarily imply soon as in like tomorrow. Uh, So Jesus then in telling them more about how these things will happen, he he references the days of Noah where uh, for like a hundred years, Noah was building the ark. Do you know what he kept saying? God says it's gonna rain, it's gonna happen soon. And they're like, okay, you're building a boat in the desert. Good work, Noah until it began to happen and then what happened? It unfolded quickly and soon. And uh, Jesus says his coming will be like that. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were unaware until the flood came 
and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. He goes on and says, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Uh, Sometimes this is used to teach the rapture, but it's really not speaking of the rapture because he just talked about the flood sweeping people away to judgment. The ones taken away here are the ones taken away to judgment, swept away. Therefore, stay awake. You don't know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. He wouldn't have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus says it'll be like a thief in the night. Paul says something similar. He says uh, to the Thessalonians, Thessalonian church, he says, you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, when you hear that, if you're like me, maybe your blood starts pumping a little bit, your heart starts racing a little bit, and maybe you find yourself a little anxious. Do you? It's easy and normal to feel that way. But you know, the, Jesus tells us these things not to scare us. And the book of Revelation is here and and has some pretty incredible things it teaches about the end times, not to frighten us, but so that we'd be ready to instill hope into us. That, hey, Jesus is actually gonna do what he said he did, said he would do. He is gonna come again. There's more to life than this place. And I don't know about you, but that gives me hope. That's good. There's good coming. And it may be awful right now, but there's good coming. And Jesus will do what he said he's gonna do. He will return. I don't know when, but he will. So I I ought to live with some expectancy of that. And in light of that, expecting him to come at any time. You know, D.L. Moody, uh, kind of the Billy Graham of 100 years ago, 100 plus years ago, he was preaching. Uh, people would say, Billy, or excuse me, D.L. Moody, why, D.L., why do you uh, preach with such passion? And Dwight would be like, well, because I don't know if by the time I'm finished, if Jesus might return. And it just motivated him to always live with expectancy and to preach with expectancy. Jesus says uh, something similar, Mark, but about that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the son, but only the father. So be on guard, be alert. You don't know what time that will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house, puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you, you don't know when the owner of the house will come back whether it's in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn, if he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. Live expectantly. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch, watch. Live purposefully. You don't have to sit and be afraid if you know Jesus Christ. You've been saved and redeemed and there's great joy in his coming. That's when all the promises finally get fulfilled. That's a great hope, our blessed hope. But you have to be patient too. James writes in James 5, you also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
you know, do you ever wonder why didn't, why didn't God just give us like the exact date Jesus was coming? Do you ever kind of wish that? Like, you know, next, next February on a Tuesday afternoon at three o'clock. That'd be sweet, wouldn't it? Well, it would be except for one fact. We'd all be even more lazy than we are sometimes right now in living out our faith. Because <laughs> we'd think, ah, you know what? I, I probably, if I can work till July, I'll have enough saved up. I can just quit and, and hold on and hang out. I'm just gonna enjoy myself. And no, he didn't tell us so that we would live with expectation, so that we would trust him, so that we would continue to pursue him, so that we would watch for his return. But that doesn't mean we, we shouldn't, you know, still go about life, taking on long-term projects, planning for the future, but planning in such a way that we hold it with an open hand saying, you know, Jesus might return tomorrow. And if he does, that's better than all these things I had planned out anyway. But still live in light of that. Still go to college, still get married, still have a family, still invest in your retirement. Don't be found sleeping when he comes. Live with purpose and with joy in hope. So all that to say, Jesus, friends, he will return at a time we don't know. So I would commend to you, join the welcoming committee, not the planning committee. Join the welcoming committee, not the planning committee. Here's what I mean. Uh, sometimes we can get so bogged down and so caught up in uh, all the details maybe that, that we don't totally understand as far as prophecy about Jesus' return. And we can get bogged down in those and think, well, maybe this is a fulfillment of prophecy. And you can pay attention to those things. There's nothing wrong with that to live with that sort of expectation, but, but don't get bogged down there. Because the reality is you and I can't change anything about when that day is set. We can't push it back, you know? We, we can't make it happen any sooner. So, so we should just, instead of trying to figure out all the details, join the welcoming committee and get the balloons ready for when he returns. Here's a little bit of what I mean by that. It helps to think through and remember the purpose of prophecy in the Bible. The reason God gives us prophecy is not so much to predict everything that's gonna happen, but to help us recognize it when it does. Uh, so twofold. Uh, first off, it, it gives us hope in the meantime. It gives us hope, prophecy does. Just like we, we've said already from Titus that while we're waiting for the blessed hope, it gives us confidence that just as Jesus has fulfilled uh, so many prophecies already, he will fulfill the others that point to his coming. Do you know, consider for a moment, we were talking about this at Bic this week. Uh, consider for a moment the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his first coming. Do you know there's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in Jesus' first coming and in his lifetime. All of those from uh, at, at a minimum 100 years prior to his being born. Things like where he was born, uh, that his uh, mother would be a virgin, uh, all kinds of things were prophesied. The, the, the town in which you know, he'd be born in Bethlehem, his genealogy, all those things were predicted hundreds of years ahead of time, 300 plus of them. You ever wondered what's the statistical possibility that Jesus 
you know, he just, he knew his Bible. And so he decided to live on purpose in such a way that people go, oh yeah, I guess that's you. Well, there was a professor, uh, William Stoner, I believe his name was, uh, years ago in his statistics class tried to figure it out. Only instead of all 300, they just took eight. Eight that, that he really couldn't fulfill. Because there are some you could look at and you go, okay, he could live this out or some person could. But what about the ones he couldn't? You know, like where he was born, the timing, all that sort of stuff. And so they figured out the statistical probability of Jesus fulfilling just those eight. Do you know what it was? One in 10 to the 17th power. So one out of 10 with 17 zeros after it. To give you an idea of how, how, uh, how huge a probability that is, or a statistical anomaly that would be, it'd be like if you covered the state of Texas in silver dollars. And by the way, Indiana fits inside of Texas a little over seven times. So you cover it, cover it knee high in silver dollars, a couple feet, and I mark one of those silver dollars with an X and I bury it in the pile somewhere in Texas. You hop in a helicopter with a blindfold, you can fly around anywhere you want to fly, and at any random time, you can reach out, go down, reach out, and grab a silver dollar. It's totally your call when you do it and where. One in 10 to the 17th power is the chance that you pick out that one silver dollar uh, uh, two feet deep across the whole state of Texas that I put an X on. That's the statistical probability that Jesus fulfilled just those eight. Well, if he fulfilled those 300, we can trust and have confidence he will return. We don't know exactly when, but he's our blessed hope. So it gives us hope in the meantime as we see these prophecies. But it's also, as I already mentioned, it's good to remember that the purpose of prophecy is, uh, is not for prediction, but for recognition. For recognition. You know, think with me for a second about some of those prophecies about Jesus. Uh, in Isaiah in particular, there's prophecy in Isaiah chapter nine that says the coming Messiah, the promised one, would rule and reign as a king. You, you probably know and recognize some of the, the prophecy, right? It's, uh, the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. Sounds like a ruling, reigning king, doesn't it? But then you fast forward to Isaiah chapter 53 and you find out uh, this promised one, this Messiah is going to be a suffering servant. He's going to be afflicted. He's going to be crushed. So which one is it? Well, over time, the, the teachers of scripture and scholars in those days before Jesus came, they came up with a lot of different ideas of how this maybe might come about and what it might be. And they were trying to predict it and figure it out. But then once Jesus showed up, for us, we look back and we go, oh, it makes total sense. Like he, he, he is the king and the ruler and he's ruling and reigning in heaven and he will come and return and rule and reign one day. And uh, he, he is the suffering servant. He was crushed for my iniquity and for yours on the cross. And he rose again. See, when we look back, we, we look at prophecy for us and we recognize what that's about. I think some of these prophecies that we read in the New Testament, especially as we get into Revelation, like when those things start to unfold, it'll just be clear. Like we don't have to speculate. It'll be like, ah, that's what that symbol was. Ah, that's what that was referring to. We'll, we'll recognize it. We don't have to worry about predicting it. Instead, we can live with hope. You know, even uh, Peter writes this in the New Testament, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, like 
guys like Isaiah who wrote about some of these things, they searched intently and with the greatest care, like they wanted to understand uh, what was happening and when this was gonna take place, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the suffering of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. They were trying to figure it out. But then it was revealed to them that they weren't serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of these things. That, that for us now, after the fact, we can see it and it's just, it's confirming of who Jesus is. And so as we look forward to his return, we don't need to be on the planning committee trying to figure everything out. We can just be on the welcoming committee because we know when it happens, we're gonna recognize it and we, we need to live in such a way the balloons are ready. So a couple last quick things as we wrap up. Jesus soon returned then, it motivates us to godly living. It motivates us to it. It says that, hey, he is coming. It might be tomorrow, it might be next month, it might not be till my great-grandchildren's lifetime, but he's coming. And if he would come, I wanna be found living my life in a way that glorifies him, whatever it is he's given me to do. Whether for me as a pastor or if, if you're a teacher or an administrator or a factory worker or whatever it is you do, do it all to the glory of God and live in a godly way. Paul says, you, besides this, you know the time, the hours come for you to wake up from sleep. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. We might not know when Jesus is returning, but we do know this. It's closer today than it was yesterday. And it's closer this week than it was last month. So in light of that, the night's far gone, the day's at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. It motivates us to walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to live a godly life. Also, it motivates us to serve sacrificially. Peter teaches us that we've each received a gift so we should use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace, good stewards of our life. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Jesus soon returned, it motivates us to, to godly living, to sacrificial service and to energetic mission. Jesus tells us what we're to be about. He, he's returning, friends. We, we don't need to worry about all the details. We can live with hope that he is. And, and we can just be about living life, uh, doing what he's told us to do, which is to, to make disciples, to, to love people, to invite them to follow Jesus with us. And we can do this knowing that he's told us, hey, hold the fort. I'm coming. I'm coming. Keep at it. Don't give up. Live with passion. I'm coming. Let me pray.